Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things blood flow restriction training. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the BFR.co, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs, access online BFR training programs, increase your own BFR knowledge with the accredited BFR.co course, or you want more information about this type of training, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gavilio. Welcome back to BFR Radio. Hope you're doing well. This is a short series on BFR training and cognitive function. Or in other words, can BFR training improve the function of our brain? In our first episode, we touched on the importance of exercise in general and cognitive function. And we also discussed a few key terms or markers that are associated with improved brain function. Today's and subsequent episodes will focus on BFR training modalities. And to kick this episode off, we're going to be looking at a hypothesis paper called Strengthening the Brain. Is resistance training with blood flow restriction an effective strategy for cognitive improvement? Let's get into the article. Now, as we age, we experience a decline in both physical performance and cognitive functions. The loss of muscle mass and strength in particular can impair our ability to carry out daily activities such as walking safely. Moreover, these age-related changes in the brain are considered risk factors for the development of neurological diseases such as dementia, which can negatively affect quality of life and independent living. While there are currently no pharmacological interventions that can effectively treat these declines, there is growing evidence that physical activity may be a valuable intervention strategy. In particular, resistance training has been shown to preserve and enhance both physical performance and cognitive function in older adults. So what are the underlying neurobiological mechanisms and effects of resistance training on cognition? Or in other words, when we do resistance training and it helps our brain out, what's happening? Now, the body's underlying processes, which are triggered by resistance exercises and have been related to cognitive performance improvements, aren't fully understood yet. However, there is research that has highlighted possible neurobiological mechanisms contributing to improvements of cognitive function in response to resistance training. On the cellular and molecular level, a possible key mechanism of resistance training that contributes to cognitive improvements is the release of multifaceted actin insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1. And I've spoken about IGF-1 in general as one of the key markers that are increased when we do BFR training exercise. And this little bit is just initially talking about IGF-1 in general. In response to resistance training, IGF-1 is mainly expressed by the liver, the musculature, and actually the brain itself. Circulating insulin life growth factor 1 can cross the blood-brain barrier, which makes it available to the brain. And to understand what the blood-brain barrier is, it's like a security system for the brain. It's a protective barrier that separates the brain from the bloodstream, allowing only certain substances to pass through and keeping potential harmful substances out. 
when we talk about insulin-like growth factor one or IGF-1, this hormone which plays a role predominantly in cell growth and development, including growth and development of nerve cells, and possibly even in the function of brain cells. Therefore, if resistance training can increase levels of IGF-1 and it can cross the blood-brain barrier, it could potentially contribute to the beneficial effects on the brain observed with resistance training in this instant. IGF-1 also promotes synaptic processes like long-term potentiation, which is a fancy way of saying that it helps strengthen the connections between nerve cells in the brain. Additionally, IGF-1 promotes angiogenesis in the brain, which means that it helps create new blood vessels, which is a really great response as we age as well. What are synaptic processes and long-term potentiation? In simple terms, these are the ways nerve cells or neurons in your brain communicate with each other. Think of it as a conversation happening between different parts of your brain to help you think, remember, or learn new things. Long-term potentiation, this is a process that helps make the conversation between neurons more efficient. It's like upgrading a phone line to make calls clearer and more stable. When IGF-1 promotes long-term potentiation, it's essentially helping to strengthen the connections between neurons, making the communication between them faster and more efficient, which helps in better learning and memory. And lastly, angiogenesis. This is the process of forming new blood vessels. Imagine if a growing city built more roads to allow for smoother and more efficient traffic flow. In the same way, IGF-1 helps in building more roads in the brain by promoting the growth of new blood vessels. This means more nutrients and oxygen can be delivered to various parts of the brain, helping to keep it healthy and functioning well. It's also important to note that low levels of IGF-1 have been linked to the risk of harmful cerebrovascular events like ischemic stroke or impaired neurovascular coupling. Now, stroke, we may be familiar with that term, and this occurs where the blood flow to a part of your brain is blocked or reduced, usually due to a blood clot or the narrowing of blood vessels. And this can prevent essential nutrients and oxygen from reaching brain cells, causing them to die. Impaired neurovascular coupling, on the other hand, may be a term we're not familiar with. This is with the relationship or coordination between the activity of neurons, that's brain cells, and the blood flow in the brain. That's the coordination or the relationship between the activity of the neurons and the blood flow in the brain. In simple terms, when a part of the brain is more active, like when you're thinking hard about a problem, needs more blood flow to supply oxygen and nutrients. Impaired neurovascular coupling means that this coordination between brain activity and blood flow is not working properly. So maintaining healthy levels of IGF-1 is important not just for cognitive function, but for overall brain health too. And the best part, resistance training has been shown to increase the release of IGF-1. This means that if you incorporate resistance training into your exercise routine, you're not just building muscle, you're also improving your cognitive function and brain health.
Studies have shown that both short-term and long-term resistance training can increase IGF-1 concentration in humans and that base changes in IGF-1 concentrations after a long-term resistance exercise intervention are associated with cognitive performance improvements. In addition to its effect on IGF-1, resistance training has also been shown to have beneficial effects on the structure and function of the brain. For instance, in older individuals, resistance training can increase gray matter density in certain regions of the brain, as well as increase cortical thickness and decrease white matter atrophy. What are these terms? Gray matter, this is like the thinking part of the brain, where all the brain's processing and computing happens. When we say there is an increase in gray matter density, it means that this thinking part of the brain is getting richer or denser, which can help in thinking more clearly or remembering things better. Cortical thickness, the cortex, is the outer layer of the brain, and it's where a lot of important brain work happens, like understanding what we see or making decisions. When we say increased cortical thickness, it means that this outer layer has grown a bit, making it potentially better and stronger. And this could be like, say for example, upgrading the processor in a computer, helping it to work faster and more efficiently. And when we say it decreases white matter atrophy, that's actually a good thing because atrophy means shrinking or wasting away. So it helps to stop this shrinking or wasting away. And white matter, this is like the internet cables of the brain, connecting different parts and helping them communicate with each other. So decreasing white matter atrophy means that these internet cables are not shrinking as much as they normally would as we age, which can help in keeping the brain connection strong and fast so different parts of the brain can talk to each other more efficiently. If we look at our 12-month resistance intervention program, a reduced whole brain volume was observed as compared to the control group. And in this case, a control group did just balance and tone training. Now, the reduced brain volume might be the consequence of dissolving degenerative changes of the brain, which means it might be helping to clear away harmful sticky substances in the brain that are often seen in older individuals or in conditions like Alzheimer's disease. However, the distinct neuronal adaptations, that's the specific changes in improvement in how brain cells function in response to resistance exercise interventions, suggests that a certain dose-response relationship may exist. That's this optimal balance around the type of exercise which gets the best results. It's really individual. And in another 12-month resistance exercise training program, this was also associated with decreased white matter atrophy. And we went through that a little bit earlier, but that's where the atrophy is the natural wearing down or shrinking of those communication cables in the brain. And it was reduced, which is a positive thing. And also resistance training was associated with lower white matter lesions volume. White matter changes are known to influence cognitive performance, especially in processing speed-dependent cognitive tasks. Some other interesting findings are that improvements in cognitive functions as a result of resistance training 
have been linked to the functioning of motor control activities of daily living, such as walking safely, as well as to quality of life and socio-emotional status. The notion that high levels of strength are beneficial for cognitive performances is further supported by numerous cross-sectional studies observing that improvement of hand grip strength, quadricep strength, leg power or whole body muscle strength are linked to higher cognitive performances. Because of the relationships between cognitive function and the quality of life, improvements in cognitive function might be associated with an enhanced socio-emotional status. So for example, decreased symptoms of depression and anxiety, increased joyful activities of daily living. Overall, the evidence suggests that resistance training is a promising and cost-effective physical intervention to decelerate physical and cognitive decline in old age. Its effect on IGF-1, brain structure and function, motor control and quality of life make it a valuable tool for maintaining and improving our own health and well-being. While resistance training has been shown to be less effective than aerobic exercises regarding the improvements of cognitive performance on behavioral and socio-emotional levels, the authors of this paper have hypothesized that the addition of wearing BFR while performing resistance exercise may hold promise for potentially greater neurocognitive effects compared to traditional resistance training interventions. This initial part of the podcast or the initial part of the paper was once again setting further foundations. And the next part of this paper continues with fundamental concepts about BFR resistance exercise and how it improves muscle strength and body composition. In this paper, they talk about a dose-response relationship regarding certain exercise variables such as load that you put on a bar they discuss another manipulation strategy to increase the efficiency of resistance training. And this includes the application of hypoxic stimuli, which can be applied by one, localized hypoxia, which is BFR, or systemic hypoxia, which is going at to altitude or training in an altitude chamber. Localized hypoxia is what we're all about, and this is achieved with BFR. With respect to brain adaptations, systemic hypoxia leads to an oxygen deficit directly in the brain, which is to a certain extent the decisive stimulus triggering positive neurophysiological adaptations. In this regard, two studies have shown improved cognitive functions following interventions with systemic hypoxia using altitude chambers or a mass system. As this paper is a hypothesis, the article proposes a few reasons as to why the creation of a localized hypoxia environment during resistance training through BFR provides a promising intervention strategy to improve cognitive function through resistance training. On a cellular and molecular level, some studies have shown a significant higher release of hormones, which are associated with positive neurophysiological adaptations such as increases in blood IGF-1, growth hormone, and vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF. And this is in response to acute resistance activities with BFR when compared to resistance training 
without BFR. To help you out, a few definitions of these various hormones. The one that you may be unfamiliar with is vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF. And this is a growth factor that plays a role in angiogenesis, which we spoke about earlier, which is the formation of new blood vessels. Studies have shown that resistance training with BFR leads to significant increases in VEGF levels. And these hormones play an important role in synaptic functioning and cognitive processes. Besides, the levels of post-exercise blood lactate concentrations are associated with acute improvements in cognitive functions, such as short-term memory and executive functions. Lactate can cross the blood-brain barrier and it could be utilized as fuel for cognitive processes. The blood-brain barrier, which we spoke about earlier as well, just again to refresh your memory, this is a highly specialized barrier that separates the blood vessels from the brain tissue. It's composed of cells that tightly regulate what substances can enter the brain from the bloodstream, which can also protect it from harmful toxin and pathogens circulating the blood. With respect to these transporters, they are responsible for transporting lactate, the metabolite that accumulates in the muscles during exercise or BFR exercise. They're responsible for transporting it into the brain. And once in the brain, lactate can be used as a fuel for cognitive processes, improving the short-term memory and executive functions. Lactate is also associated with changes in peripheral brain-derived nootropic factors. You would remember in the previous podcast, hopefully, that we spoke about BDNF just briefly. And this contributes to neuroplasticity, facilitating cognitive performance. Another potential mechanism is through norepinephrine-mediated neurophysiological activities. Oof, a lot of words. What does this mean? Well, aerobic and resistance exercise with BFR has been shown to induce increases in norepinephrine, or sometimes known as noradrenaline, compared to performing the same exercise alone or without BFR. Norepinephrine affects the prefrontal cortex, which is a part of our brain that helps with things like decision-making and planning. When there is more norepinephrine in the prefrontal cortex, it can help strengthen connections between neurons, which can improve our ability to think and learn. Furthermore, when norepinephrine concentration is increased, it stimulates signaling pathways which affect BDNF, or brain-derived neurotropic factor. As we discussed in the previous podcast, Brain-derived neurotropic factor plays a really important role in promoting the growth and survival of neurons, as well as supporting learning and memory. Therefore, this is a common and important marker to look out for in studies looking at changes in brain and cognitive function. To highlight the potential of BFR resistance exercise as a strategy for cognitive function, two weeks of low-intensity BFR training done twice a day leads to a higher basal level of IGF-1 in comparison to the same resistance training without BFR. As mentioned earlier, IGF-1 plays an important role in synaptic functioning and cognitive processes. Because of the link between a deficiency in blood growth hormone levels and cognitive impairment, 
increases in growth hormone are associated with benefits of cognitive performance. Furthermore, in older adults who regularly perform non-BFR physical exercise, a higher level of growth hormone and better cognitive performance was noticed compared to sedentary, that is non-exercising older adults. Cortical excitability is another potential mechanism of action that could lend support to this training method, that's BFR resistance training. BFR studies have noted an increase in the brain's responsiveness termed as cortical excitability and high levels of oxygen-carrying hemoglobin in the brain's motor areas. Conversely, during knee extension exercises with BFR, the prefrontal brain areas showed more deoxygenated hemoglobin, while the increase in oxygenated hemoglobin was less pronounced, signs of increased brain activity. And these advantages observed on both cellular and molecular levels, as well as the functional level of the brain, led them to hypothesize that both short-term and long-term resistance training with BFR may be more efficient in enhancing cognitive function compared to the traditional non-BFR resistance exercise regimes. The authors then discussed the fundamentals of designing a resistance training program covering concepts such as load, the number of repetition sets, rest periods, and exercise selections, to name a few. They then proceeded to discuss some of the more pertinent BFR variables, which I feel are more relevant to this podcast. Although I've gone through them before, these are always worth a refresher. And some of the variables to consider with BFR use include One, cuff width. Remember that wide BFR cuffs restrict arterial blood flow more than narrow BFR cuffs using the same pressure. Therefore, the cuff pressure should be applied relative to the cuff width. Hence, thin cuff widths tend to use a greater percentage of limb occlusion pressure and hence greater relative pressure compared to wider cuffs. In simple terms, a wider cuff, you would use a lower pressure to achieve the same results, which for some people could actually be a lot more comfortable during use. And this is more so relevant for lower body cuffs. The other one is pressure calculation considerations, where both body measurements and blood pressures play a role in how to calculate the cuff pressure. In particular, the circumference of the limbs is the biggest predictor for the cuff pressure to reach arterial blood flow restriction. And the cuff pressure also depends on the systolic arterial blood pressure of the user. Once an arterial occlusion pressure of a limb is calculated, 50 to 80% is calculated for cuff use. Once again, if we're looking towards cuff width, a wider cuff, we can use a lower percentage, which is a lot more comfortable for the user, giving way to an advantage of using a slightly wider cuff. A third variable to consider with BFR use is the cuff material. And this will tend to be the type of BFR system that you would use. This could be a nylon type blood pressure cuff, or if you're into your practical BFR, you might be using an elastic cuff and and this has a consideration. Then there's inflation protocol used during exercise, whether that's applying an intermittent, that's inflation and deflation, or continuous pressure. And in low-intensity BFR exercise, B 
because the mechanical stress is really low. We need lots of metabolic stress in this scenario. Therefore, typically in this low-intensity scenario, we tend to want to try to lead towards a more continuous pressure. However, saying that, there has been a few studies using low-intensity BFR and an intermittent protocol that's deflating in between sets to also show effectiveness. My two cents worth here is that in this scenario, when you're working with someone who has no BFR experience and may have a high pressure, and if they've got low training age or they haven't exercised much before, that you may want to spend the first couple of weeks of BFR use slowly increasing the total time that you would have a blood pressure cuff inflated for. Another variable is the blood flow restriction system that you would use. This could be from the blood pressure cuff type systems that's automated, which keeps the pressure control during use. And that's typically connected to a small compressor through exercise. And then you have those manual handheld pressure control systems where you would inflate it and then disconnect the pump and the tube so you could train pretty much free and uninhibited. From a practical application, the optimal solutions to determine the cuff pressure, ensuring an appropriate stimulus would be to use a pressure that is relevant to the cuffs that are being used and also to the individual that is wearing the cuffs. Furthermore, even moderate cuff pressures induce adaptations comparable to high cuff pressures. Hence, more moderate cuff pressures, that is using a slightly lower percentage of calculated arterial occlusion of a limb, are recommended because higher cuff pressures may increase the risk of full arterial occlusion and may increase any potential adverse side effects. In this paper, they provided a table of recommendations for BFR exercises. And just going through them briefly, once again, a really great refresher is that for low-intensity BFR exercise is to use loads of between 20 to 50% of 1RM. Incorporate a high repetition scheme and they suggest the 75 rep protocol, which is four sets where the first set is 30 reps followed by three sets of 15. Now, I spoke about this in lots of podcasts, is that my own experiences, and I've actually read other studies that lend towards a slightly different set and rep scheme. In this case, for low loads, the key is the first set and high repetitions are important. But for some BFR users, making someone do 30 reps for their first time may do more harm than good. This is especially important for anyone who has limited training experience, let alone limited training experience with BFR cuffs on. Therefore, for low load resistance exercise, still use a high rep protocol, complete as many reps as possible until you feel that you are one to two reps short of failure under good technique. Whether this is 10, 12, 15, 20, or even more reps, this is fine. Don't get bogged down in this. First, it has to be 30 repetitions. And say, for example, if your client has limited strength training experience or BFR use, I would rather suggest a two to three week period getting them used to the cuffs and building tolerance to this training. So that might be rather than going for 20 minutes total inflated pressure on the lower body or it's recommended 15 for the upper body, 
you might inflate it for five minutes and then have a minute off and then reinflate it, building up that tolerance and time so they become more comfortable with using BFR cuffs. Ultimately, like all good training programs, individuality is important. From the pressures used through the exercise selection, this level of individuality is really important. For low intensity BFR exercise, interset rest periods should be short. That is the rest in between each set of one exercise, and that's typically around 30 to 60 seconds. Inter-exercise rest periods are suggested at five minutes with the cuffs deflated. My advice is to try and complete the first exercise selection that might be, say, if you're doing three sets of squats, you might have some warm-up sets, but you would keep it completely inflated for that whole exercise. Then you would deflate the cuffs while you pack up the exercise. You set up next exercise, you reinflate the cuffs, and then away you go with the BFR for that second exercise. Although not mentioned in the articles, a suggested total inflation time for the lower body is 20 minutes and for 15 for the upper body. Again, if BFR is new to you, build the total continuous BFR inflation time. So for example, five minutes for a week or so, and then build to seven to eight minutes, and then keep increasing that as you're able to tolerate. Recommendations for exercise selection can include a variation of exercises, including single and multi-joint exercises, full range of motion. Worth having a look if you are new to the world of BFR. Overall, this paper highlights the theoretical potential for BFR and improved cognitive function. In particular, it highlights the interplay between neurobiological mechanisms and cognitive processes to develop efficient prevention strategies to decelerate cognitive decline due to the aging process and to optimize rehab strategies for individuals with a decline in cognitive function. In the next couple of episodes, we'll dig into a few specific BFR training studies to highlight how it helps cognitive function in these different scenarios. And before I go, like the last episode, I mentioned I wanted to trial a few things. The first was a what would you do segment where I pose a scenario question and you can answer. So for this episode, we're going to go into what would you do? And for this scenario, let's say you're putting together a strength training program for an older adult who wants to improve their cognitive function. You've heard that resistance training can be really good for their brain. What type of resistance training would you program and what exercise variables should you consider to optimize the stimulus for cognitive function? And once again, the answer is not going to be on this podcast, but rather it's going to be on my website and also on Podbean, which is where I host this episode. And that's all for this episode. I hope you're enjoying this journey so far. Join us for the next episode where we are going for a BFR walk. If this episode has sparked your own interest in starting an exercise regime, get in touch with me through my website, which is thebfr.co, that's www.thebfr.co, or on my socials at thebfr.co. You can also purchase your own set of BFR cuffs from our website, and once again, that's at thebfr.co. And also, a couple of favors from me to you. 
If you know of someone who could benefit from this episode, please share it. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening and remember to keep the pump.